I'm Pete Soderling, and welcome to the Zero Prime Podcast, where we explore the early stories of top startups via the experiences of their engineer founders. This week, I chat with Barry McArdle, the co-founder and CEO of Hex, which is building an amazing data analysis tool for team-based data collaboration. I'm lucky to be an early investor in Hex, and I've appreciated so many things about watching Barry's journey to excellence as a founder and CEO. I think you'll really enjoy our chat today. Barry, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Pete. Thanks for having me on, man. How did we meet anyway? Just kind of reflecting on how that happened. It was probably an email intro at some point when you were starting Hex. It was an email intro from none other than Sarah Catanzaro from Amplify. There you go. The ever-present Sarah Canzaro in the, the data world. Well, that's awesome. We were raising our seed round and she was leading it. And I was asking her about other sharp folks she knew in the data space who might be interested. And I think you must have been one of the first names she said. Well, that's very kind and I'm flattered and especially grateful since it introduced us together and we've had the chance now to work together for the last few years. Yeah, about like, like three and a half years ago now. So time, time, time flies. flies. <laughs> time flies. Well, I wanted to like rewind a little bit back, you know, in terms of your story, like a little bit before that. I'm just wondering, like, what's the sequence of events in your life that you think prepared you to be a founder? Like, how did that look for Barry? And I don't know if there were awarenesses that sort of dawned on you over time or a certain unique set of skills that you learned. But I'm just curious, how would you explain that and, and your path to being a founder and what, what were the key moments? That's a great question. I think there's probably two parts to this. One is just like being a founder generally. And then I think two is like being the founder of Hex. And we, we can get to that later. I don't know. There's a lot of different types of people become founders and I don't think there's one template for it. I did always gravitate for whatever reason toward I don't know, positions where I was sort of like inspiring and leading teams. I was like in high school, I like led the team that built the like homecoming float for our class. I don't know. It was like, it was always my vibe, you know, I was like, go take on a big challenge and go try to do it. And then in college, I wound up running the organization that brought all the concerts and speakers to Northwestern, a group called A&O. And that was like the highlight of my college career. Like I mostly went to class, but I, you know, that was the thing I like really leaned into. And that, like, I enjoyed the music and the, um, like all that, that element of it. But the part I really enjoyed was like this sense of like taking on these big projects with a cool team and like promoting it and having people show up to the show and that kind of feeling. And I joke sometimes that that does feel kind of congruent with what it's to be a founder is like some nice people give you more money than you know how to manage. And like you go round up a bunch of people and you try to go put a thing out in the world and hope people show up. And so I don't know, I, I had a collection of experiences that I think helped prime me for that. And, and then my time at Palantir too is a very entrepreneurial place. I think you get, you know, there's a lot of great experience, obviously like relevant to data, but I think even just more generically, just it's such a great environment to drive skills on critical thinking, pulling together new teams and projects and products. And um, that was incredibly formative as well, I think for me and my co-founders. Yeah, I love that whole founder like ambition to sort of kick off a big project or a new project or take the bull by the horn, so to speak, and, and really round up a team and folks and, and try and sort of stretch yourself and grow in ways that maybe you're uncomfortable doing, but you know you just have some innate sense to want to achieve and benefit other people that way, right, through these projects. So that's well said. Super interesting. And what about the hex specifics of that story? Um, what was the key insight that you feel led you, compelled you to start Hex? Yeah, I'd been a builder and user of data tools my whole career. So after producing college uh, concerts in college, 
I went in consulting and I was doing like, I was like the one among my teams that always gravitated toward like the data stuff. I was like building the gnarliest Excel models and running the illicit access databases to back my insane data products, basically like data apps. I was building in Excel, was, like doing like dark unholy things with macros. And like, I was really had fun with that. And I was working on some really cool projects with airlines, like trying to use data to better understand like how we should price Wi-Fi. And I was like these really interesting projects. And I was talking to a friend of mine who is at Palantir who convinced me to come over there and I get exposed to a lot of different parts of sort of the emergent, a lot of emergent data technologies in the mid 2010s when that became a thing. And so I built a user of data tools there. And then went to a startup after that where working really close with our data team. So I'd sort of seen it all. I felt like at some point and sort of used a lot of different tools and seen a lot of different workflows. And the interesting thing I think with Hex is it's like the product I wish I had at every single one of those stops in my career. And the thing that always felt obvious to me and always confusing that no one had done it was like these data workflows are super fragments. You know, even today, that has been true for the last 10 years, but even today, like you go, we, we talk to customers all the time. They're like, yep, your data workloads, we've got a SQL thing over here. Then we've got a no code thing over here. And We've got this thing over here for our Python workbooks. We've got, you know, we're moving data around between CSVs with these. And then band result is like a CSV we drop into our dashboard tool. And then we take screenshots of a chart and paste it into a doc to turn it into a PDF to send it in an email as our way of communicating insights. And it's, it's this is a super messy, fragmented thing. And I had felt that pain myself so many times. And in my last company, I kind of started as like a buyer. I was like, surely someone has built this. Surely, especially after coming from Palantir, where we'd built a bunch of really great software, I was kind of like, well, surely someone's done this. And no one had. And it took a few months to realize and to turn the corner from being like a buyer to a builder. But when I did, it sort of clicked. I was like, well, actually, I think my co-founders and I would actually be incredibly well-positioned people to go do this. And so it was pretty nerve-wracking and scary embarking on that. But it also felt like the culmination of a lot of experiences and pain I had had. And I was very fortunate to have two amazing co-founders, Caitlin and Glenn, who I'd worked with at Palantir, who sort of like also saw. And, you know, that was that sort of core insight that's sort of carried through most of what we've done over the last few years. And how did you sort of round up Caitlin and Glenn, you know, into this merry band? Like, how did the conversations flow around, you know, the insights? And I'm just curious as to like how that, like the team come before the insight, the insight come after the team, like it was all at the same time. Like, talk to me a little bit more about the mechanics of how that happened. Glenn and I have been working together, have been now working together for almost 10 years. He was my intern at Palantir and we, we built stuff together. And then he followed me to this healthcare startup I went to afterward. And it was when we were there that we were both kind of seeing this problem. And I remember inviting him to a meeting I had with one of the people on our data team. And I remember she was like, why is Glenn here? I was like, because he's an engineer, he's very different. Well, I was like, don't worry about it. He's just here. But afterward, he, we kind of debriefed. We're like, this is super broken, right? It was like, yeah. And so that kind of happened coincident, I think. And then um, long, the short version of it is like, both of us were going to be moving to California. We were in New York. We were both going to be moving to California because our both of our significant others had both gotten like, can't say no jobs at the same time. And so there's this kind of cosmic coincidence. And it just felt like really obvious and natural, we should do this. And then Caitlin was already out here and I loved working with her at Palantir. And she was like one of the first few people I called and we kind of got into it. And and I became pretty convinced that I thought she would be an amazing partner for this. So the three of us got together in it almost four years ago now, I guess. It was like the end of 2019. Great. Well, there's one other question I have about the early team because I'm really appreciative of what Hex has done on the design sense, on the marketing sense, and the product design sense, and the branding sense. Even to look at some of your collateral that came out around Hex 3.0, you know, in the last couple of weeks, like you guys are clearly having lots of fun with the whole design aspect and really like building the company and the product brand. And I really respect that because I think that so many developer tools, you know, even infrastructure tools, like 
like I think a lot of them could be infused with far better UX, far better design sensibility. I think engineers actually care about design, maybe contrary to, to public belief. And so I'm just wondering, like, where did that inspiration come from in the founding team? And is that something that, you know, other founders can bottle up if they want to? Like, how did you channel that? I'm really dying to know. Well, I thank you for the kind words. Very thoughtful. Well, there's a couple of things. I've always been passionate about design. Like actually that group I was talking about where I like did the concerts and speakers in college actually for two years ran the like committee on that, that did like the marketing and promotion. And like I was doing graphic design for it. So it has been like part of my interest. And some of that just comes from me caring about it, I guess. And I think that's true for a lot of very design-led companies. Like you look at companies that I would not you know, even compare ourselves to the level at which like a linear operates because it's run by designers. And it's like, I think it makes sense. We were also incredibly fortunate to have one of our first employees, like basically employee two, but he joined about the same time as employee one, was a designer and someone we had worked with at Palantir and who's been just enormously impactful to the company, both from that design leadership standpoint, but so many others. But yeah, really infusing that from really early, I think really matters. And then I think we just now day to day, just prioritize it and care about it. It's just part of our culture. You mentioned like the 3.0 launch, like we really almost instinctively like spend a lot of time on the that stuff because it's it is fun. You know, it's funny the 3.0 launch, like we kind of decided earlier this year, it was like, hey, we've got all these new features coming in over the summer. Really, it's going to feel like an all new hex. We should, you know, do a launch event around this. And we were talking about it, and I, I told the team, I said, the goal, the number one goal for this event is not going to be leads or like website traffic. The number one thing is going to be having fun and learning, which sounds like really squishy, but the, the insight there is like when we have fun, it comes through, and our work is exuberant and interesting, and it and it reflects our brand, and all these other good things follow if we just have fun. And like, I don't know if my investors are listening, like they'll be like, you know. It's like, it's not like a, there's no like ROI calculation on that, but it, it's this intrinsic thing that I really think matters and I think is true. And we just got back from Coalesce, the DBT conference. Like our booth was this kind of like semi-unhinged, like comp USA <laughs> 90s homage. We like made boxed versions of software for us and for a bunch of other modern data stack companies and put them on the shelf and had all this retro stuff. We had coasters that looked like those old school CompuServe DBTs. Wow. I don't know. We just went in and we were like, we're just going to have fun with it. And when you do that, I think a lot of other good things follow. And I think there's somewhere along the way for a lot of software companies that they lose that. They get bigger. They say, well, we're selling to enterprise now. We're in a market where design, as you mentioned, Pete, like traditionally hasn't mattered. So it doesn't matter. But I don't know. I think these things matter. And I think on the product design front and on the brand, I think how you market yourself, I think it matters. And I think more people should spend more time just saying, we're just going to have fun. And all these other good things usually follow that. So yeah, that, that would be my advice if folks want to try to infuse that just have fun yeah great to hear and i understand how so many of these the inception of these values are, are generated from the founder's experience uh, the founding team's experience and so these things manifest themselves in companies in i think really concrete ways later down the road and so it's obvious that you guys care about that and i think it shows in the quality of the way that you present yourself to the world so kudos to that well it's very, it's very kind of you to say thank you i'm wondering too you mentioned the recent conferences you know that have popped up coalesce and and obviously data council and others. And some of these like tend to aggregate so many vendors and data tools from the ecosystem. I'm wondering when you started the company in 2019, I guess, it, we were still like sort of swimming in so many best of breed point solution, modern data stack and analytics tools. Did that scare you at all? Like how did you dare to throw another tool into the mix? And what made you confident that you had some competitive differentiation and a story that would float when even at 
that time, the market was still like already saturated with with tools in the space. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, and it's true. We had this sort of Cambrian explosion, and you know, we'll see where that goes over time. But you know, it's interesting because when we first started the company, actually, or when we were approaching the starting line, that wasn't. It was just starting to happen, so it wasn't clear to me then that that was the case. And then we started the company, and like we were one of like a lot of tools that were getting started around that time in the modern data stack. And I think there was both the combination of like the quote unquote modern data stack becoming like a thing. You saw DBT really expanding during that time. In fact, the company I was at, we were really early adopters of DBT. We were in that sort of early New York kind of um, healthcare and DTC hotbed of that. And so we, we, I kind of got like a front row seat to that. But it wasn't until we'd actually started the company and raised money that I kind of realized how many other companies, both that were competitors and complements that were sort of in the mix. And it was a little intimidating early on. It, it can't not be. You see these other people and you're like, well, you know, but I think we pretty quickly got a sense that we did have some more unique insights and unique approaches. And, you know, I think some of that's cooled down now, but for anyone going out and starting a company that's a worthwhile idea, it's likely someone else is going to be doing it similarly. And sometimes it's because they're copying you. And sometimes there's just ideas whose time have come. Yep. And multiple people, you'll see this all the time where multiple companies kind of converge on a thing at the same time without any apparent sort of like information leakage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think what I've encouraged the team to do and what I've certainly tried to do personally is just keep our eyes on our own work. Go spend time with our users, go spend time with our customers, focus on how we're going to improve their lives work with a sense of urgency because it is a race at some level, but also like a sense of taking time to have fun, as I just said. And also an observation that I've made sometimes is like slow is smooth, smooth is fast. Like you feel like you're in a race, but if you go and cut a bunch of corners, you're actually going to pay for that long term. So I think being able to work with a sense of purpose and confidence really is much better than what a lot of companies wind up devolving into, which is like they just get freaked out and they lose a lot of sleep and they they spend all their time perseverating around a perceived competitor. And everyone will go through that period at some point where you'll feel that competitive pressure. But I think the more you can just focus on your own thing and your own work and your customers and your users and the value you want to create for them, like the rest usually works itself out. There's a saying, it's a little macabre, but like most companies die of suicide, not murder. Really? Like building startups is hard and more likely than not, your competitors are going to make mistakes. And sometimes it's enough to just make less mistakes than them. You don't have to like go and try to kill them as much as just like outlast or just focus on making the best decisions for yourself. And like more often than not, they will, you know, they'll give up first maybe or they'll, they'll make more mistakes than you and then you'll be lost on that. Yeah, I got it. Well, I want to talk a little bit about Hex 3.0 and encourage listeners to go check it out because there are so many cool, quote, magic features that you've um, added into the product, obviously, you know, a number of which are generated by LMs. And so I want to encourage folks to check that out. And we unfortunately don't have time to talk about all the features. But what I wanted to ask you, because there's so many folks in our community who are also building stuff around LMs, like what surprised you most in terms of the challenges of like building internet scale features, you know, against sort of these modern language models? Like what were the gotchas or, or caveats that you sort of discovered as a team? I'm just wondering like what your take is there and how you would advise people to think about launching these kinds of features on their own. There's just a massive gulf between a work like a demoable thing and something that will work at internet scale for hundreds of customers, thousands of users every day, which is now the scale we're at. Like the first version of a lot of our LLM and magic features we built in like a month. Like, you know, you can get there pretty fast, but it's actually productizing and scaling that winds up taking longer than you think. And like, as an example, like a lot of these are now backed by a pretty sophisticated RAG pipeline with semantic search backed by a vector database and, you know, all the latest buzzwords, right? Well, you spend time on the internet, you're like, oh, like everyone's doing that. Well, it turns out like very few people have actually successfully like implemented all of these things at scale because it's really freaking hard. And like, there's a million things you run into over time. Just one example is like for us, you know, that semantic retrieval pipeline, like 
you know, we, we have people's on schemas, like for their data warehouses, like indexed with a bunch of metadata in our vector database. And it's like, well, there's a ton of like things on how you handle re-indexes and search and performance and making that work at scale. That's just like hard. And you have to work through that. And our, our team has done a wonderful, really great job on it. But the gulf between like a thin wrapper around GPT that will demo well and something that will reliably work for all the wild variation of how people's data is structured and how they want to work in the real world is, is very big. And I compare this sometimes to what it was like to build for like build software, build for the cloud like 10 years ago, like there were certain things that just required a lot, a lot, a lot of work to get from like works on my machine to like actually works in the cloud. And obviously that's not like entirely solved now, but there's a lot of things that like have just gotten way freaking better. Like even just like Terraform and the ability to deal with configurations. But like 10 years ago, those things did not exist and it was a much worse experience. And I think we're at that sort of still like primitive era when it comes to the LLM pipeline where we don't understand yet how to make it simple to take like something that works at one scale and make it work at another reliably in the way we we have for other cloud technologies. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, much respect again to you and the team for sorting that out. It's obvious that the LM stack is not set yet. And so I think we're going to look back in not the too distant future and laugh at how this era of LLMs, it's like the whole like way you even have to program with them. Like you kind of have to yell at them in like specific stern tones. Like it's like, don't do that. You will write SQL. You will not write Markdown. You were helpful. You were so helpful. You will think step by step, but not too much. Like it's insane. And at some level, it's like this emergent thing of LLMs. It's like part of the charm. But at another level, it's like, I just so strongly doubt that five or 10 years from now, we'll look back and be like, I, I think we are going to chuckle at how primitive this era feels. Now, now be a good little LLM and go and fetch me this or go and fetch me that. Well, you know, it's easy that you look back at like the way we use the internet 10 or 20 years ago. It's like you, you laugh. You're like, oh, remember like burning CDs? Like, Well, I think literally the fact that you can flatter your LLM with the right prompts and get access to things that you're not supposed to have access to or or use reverse psychology on your LLM, you know, to achieve some kind of data leakage scenario or attack. It's just hysterical, right? So it's interesting is like, is this just the future of programming? Like is from here on out, there's this foundational technology that's just so weirdly different than all the other technologies. It's non-deterministic and you pull it and we're worried about prompt injection forever. Or as usually I think turns out with technology, you know, there's just gonna be a ton of innovation and we can't see it from here, but like there are new peaks and vistas. I think it's so obviously the latter, just how fast this stuff is moving. But it's just what a fun time to be alive and building software. It's, I feel very grateful too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Even the times where you're struggling with this stuff, it's like there's kind of this joy of like being on the frontier that's really fun. Mm -hmm. For sure. Well, I wanted to ask you, like, what do you see as the largest possible vision slash version of Hex? Like, where are you guys headed and what can you share with us about um, how you sort of articulate that vision as, as a CEO? Yeah. Hex, briefly, I think is loved today and really thought of today as sort of um, a tool for data analysis and data science. It's, you know, the thing that I always wanted, as I mentioned earlier, for doing those types of advanced and deep dive analytics workflows. But that core insight we had was less about just being like that you know, whatever, replacing Jupyter notebooks or whatever, which we've, I think, done a pretty good job of for a specific set of use cases. But we had felt like there was this opportunity that internally we call you know, kind of the integrated front end for the data stack, which is how do you go and, and actually simplify and integrate and unify more of these workflows? And there's always a risk in trying to be like, I don't know, too much of a Swiss Army knife or something for everyone. And 
at the same time, I think especially today, there's sort of this wave that's coming in almost a backlash in some ways from the Cambrian explosion of data tools around some consolidation effects. And we see this happen live with our customers every day. I was just talking to a customer earlier today where they were basically consolidating a lot of other tooling they have just in hacks because it can do these things for them. And in, even in the 3.0 launch, there's a number of things we introduced that I think accelerate and bring that further in the future. And so our vision is not just being a better Jupyter notebook or being a better dashboard builder or being a better AI LLM chatbot that didn't really exist before, but now they do. It really is about like, hey, it turns out that a lot of the, these things serve a lot of the same types of workflows for a lot of the same types of people trying to work with a lot of the same types of questions and a lot of the same types of stakeholders on a lot of the same types of data. And there's this opportunity to have those workflows feel more integrated, more intuitive, and also ultimately for our customers, save them money because you wind up paying a bunch of different bills for a bunch of different things. And so we think there's a huge opportunity there. And I think that is both very exciting. It is also requires a lot of balance of going and pursuing that ambition with also like rigorous focus when you're small, you can't take on everything at once. And so we've had to really like pick where we're going and our battles. But I think as time has gone on, it's become more and more apparent and more apparent to our customers that that's a vision that that can and should exist. And that's what I spend kind of my days thinking about. Great. Love it. Well, I want to just move into something a little bit more lighthearted as we wrap up. If you'll humor me with our quantum round, which as you can imagine, is a set of rapid fire questions to which you give as few worded answers as possible to. Are you game? I am game. I'm ready to enter the quantum realm. So if you were an O'Reilly book cover, what animal would you be? First thing that comes to mind is a bear. My name is Barry and my nickname growing up, my family just called me Bear. So probably Bear. I don't know that I have a lot of bear-like qualities though. I'm not like, particularly large or don't hibernate to that extent, but um, that's, that's what came to mind. So I'm going with it. Let's go with it. I love it. But what's the weirdest thing about yourself that you would never tell anyone? Ooh, uh, well, now I'm not to tell everyone. Right? There is a weird story that both my front teeth are fake. People I grew up with will laugh, but I ruined a charity event that was a rollerblading like fundraiser by breaking a fall with my teeth. <laughs> they banned they banned rollerblading at this event. Everyone was pissed at me. So that was a particularly <laughs> embarrassing episode. Well, if any of those folks are listening, um, I'm just going to ask them to text you immediately and tell you that they still remember. Oh, they all remember. They all remember. But what's the one data infra slash AI trend that you think is super short-lived or won't last? I think it is trying to invent a lot of small subcategories. I kind of think that there are only a few big categories and that it is perfectly valid and it is a thing we have done to be honest and transparent of like kind of having, you know, an initial smaller niche that you want to go and really be great at. I think it's important actually as essential as a startup. But I think that there's sort of this trend and you already see people coming out of it that is a little bit of a zero interest rate phenomenon of like there's infinite categories because companies have infinite budget for SaaS and tools to do infinite smaller versus smaller fractally subdivided like tasks. You know, I, I think that's that will go away. And even within LLMs and it, you know, out of data a little bit that into like the LLM thing, there's like a lot of people that are trying to invent these subcategories it's like prompt engineering, prompt observability versus ML ops versus these things. And it's, it is both all exciting because there's this like effervescence and a Cambrian explosion in that space. But I think if history is any guide, all these the companies that are most successful are the ones who have a really mature sense of how things come back together into these sort of smaller or, or bigger uh, rivers versus like the infinitely small tributaries. Mm -hmm. And finally... How do you think the data tooling landscape is going to shake out going forward? And do you have any predictions for the next, say, five to 10 years? 
I think both between the consolidatory effects we're seeing and the effects of LLMs, I actually think the market and TAM for analytics and data, it's still small compared to what it can and should be. Uh, the number of people, I have this kind of core thesis of like, there's just this like, infinite demand for insight and we're supply constrained, not demand constrained. Like the amount of insight and data answers that are sort of generated on any given data in an organization isn't like just the number that are asked. It's actually like a very small number. It's just like the number that the, like the data team can keep up with or the number that like stakeholders can tolerate the like lag time to get an answer back. And I think that that will change in the next few years in a way that I think is really exciting and something I'm excited to see and hopefully help author that sort of transition. So where we think that the market is actually still really small compared to what will ultimately be, and that's really exciting for us. Couldn't agree more. You know, as a person who's been active in the data space myself for the last 12 plus years, I appreciate that vision and I absolutely agree. Well, Barry, it's been great to have you. Thanks for joining us and taking some time out of your busy schedule and running Hacks. No, thanks for having me, Peter. It's always a pleasure chatting with you. And if folks are interested in what we're doing, they can check us out at X.Tech. And I'd love to hear um, love to hear from folks. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Zero Prime Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Barry McArdle. You can find Barry on X at B-A-R-R-A-L-D and find more info on Barry's company Hex at hex.tech. If you like hearing from engineer founders on the cutting edge of enterprise startups and developer tools, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast app and subscribe to the show. We'll see you next time.